This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. They say Wagner, which is believed to have ties to Russia's President Vladimir Putin, is mostly motivated by the chance to enrich itself by securing lucrative natural resources. That's uh, reporter Kent Metza talking about allegations that Burkina Faso has hired the Wagner Group. Details coming up. Also, Ghana is trying to rebound from an economic meltdown. Interpol says it has rescued 90 victims of human trafficking and child exploitation in West Africa. And the UN Security Council expresses deep concern at Libya's political deadlock. All these and more on African News Tonight. Africa Leaders Summit concluded last week with a flurry trade deals as America resets a button for close ties with Africa amid China's aggressive influence on the continent. For more on the gains and missed opportunities during the summit, I'm joined live in the studio by Daniel Kawama. He's the National Unity Platform Leader USA and a native of Uganda. Daniel. Yes, Welcome sir. to African News Tonight. Oh, thank you for having me today. Thank you so, so much. So, you were closely following the goings-on at the summit. Yes. Uh, what did you think were missed opportunities by African leaders? Uh, first of all, this was a very important summit to have, especially from the perspective of the United States, uh, to, tie, to try to reestablish relationships uh, with the African continent. Uh, it's been long overdue uh, because uh, for a very long time, China has dominated the continent uh, of Africa. If you look at the trade deficit, uh, the trade uh, between um, the Africa and China right now is the biggest trade partner, about $240 billion per year, while United States is at $61 billion. So it was very important uh, for the United States to reestablish that relationship be- between um, the Africa continent and, and the U.S., because of the values of the United States. Um, as Africans, we want the values of human rights, of democracy, of individual liberties. When China is negotiating with African leaders, they don't care about any of those. But when United States is on the table, you know that they are going to stand for the people the way they are standing with Ukraine right now. And that was a big win for us to make sure U.S. is back on the table. So what can uh, African leaders, Africa, get out of uh, the United States? There are several things that they can get out of the U.S. Um, First of all, trade. Trade is a big issue. Uh, For instance, I come from Uganda. Uh, We are the second uh, highest uh, exporters of coffee uh, in Africa. So we can uh, provide uh, coffee to to the market base here in in the United States. Uh, Technology is very important. The United States has many excellent education institutions. So transferring that technology between the institutions here of higher learning in the U.S. to Africa can make a big difference. Uh, Third point, at the summit, they talked about starting sister cities relationship 
between the urban centers here in the United States and the urban centers in Africa. Urban migration is one of the biggest things happening on the continent with the population of young people moving in the cities escalating. So how do you manage those cities to make sure they run smoothly? Those are things which we can learn from the United States, how some of the big cities operate and take back on the continent of Africa. Among other things, getting United States businesses to operate on the continent of Africa, that's a gold mine. Uh, there's a lot of potential for investment, and part of the summit was opening those doors of opportunity for many businesses, small businesses in the U.S. that are looking for a market base. And those relationships were established uh, during the summit. You are a leader of the, uh, one of the leaders uh, in the diaspora. Right. So what did President Biden specifically offer the African diaspora? Several things. One, uh, President Biden committed to $55 billion U.S. dollars uh, for the continent of Africa. And that's going to do a lot of things from health care to security to education, to women empowerment, uh, to focus on renewable energy. So that's going to make a big difference on the continent of Africa. Uh, another thing which the Biden administration did is engaging the diaspora. Through an executive order, he has formed a committee, a council of African diaspora members who are going to be advising the White House on the role of the African diaspora because the numbers of Africans in the U.S. has been on the rise. So we are the ambassadors of the continent. So by giving us this council through the State Department, we're going to have a seat at the table and be able to have meaningful discussions and dialogue with the United States on how things are operating on the continent. Secondly, the U.S. is also uh, investing $100 million uh, in the YALI program. That's the Youth African Leadership Initiative, which was started by Barack Obama in 2010. So they are investing resources in this initiative to make sure they can empower young Ugandans, especially youth, so they can engage in entrepreneurship, they can create businesses. Youth are the leaders of tomorrow. So that was a big win as well for this summit. The United States is also advocating for Africa to get a seat at the UN Security Council. That's a big win, as well as the G20. Those are initiatives that are going to make a very big difference for the continent of Africa. And lastly, Daniel, uh, there were, I'm uh, just curious, there were a number of Africans uh, from the diaspora who staged a protest. Yes. Including your organization. Absolutely. What was that all about? Human rights are a big aspect of the continent of Africa. When this summit was organized, the uh, United States made a decision to invite 49 African countries. Uh, now, some of those leaders uh, have been engaging with um, what we we'll call crimes against humanity, oppression of their citizens. You can look at the situation in Egypt right now with President Sisi, where there are many Egyptians who are in jail, who are part of the opposition. The same thing in my country, Uganda. Uh, you have many civilians who are abducted, uh, who are, uh, uh, there's a lot of stifling of freedom of speech with some of the laws which are being passed in the country, like Computer Misuse Act, among others. So we're standing up to remind the United States that much as you are expanding opportunities on the economic front, you should not forget the values of this country. The United States has always been known as a shining city on the hill. So we want to make sure they remember those values and they push these leaders that, yes, you want trade. Yes, you want investors, but don't forget about the human rights. And that's why we're protesting. Daniel Kauma, the National Unity Platform leader, USA, and a native of Uganda. Thank you for your input. Thank you for having me.
The International Criminal Police Organization, Interpol, says it has rescued 90 victims of human trafficking and child exploitation in West Africa. Fifteen were underage victims of sexual exploitation and forced labor in gold mines, open-air markets, and domestic settings. Fifteen suspected traffickers were arrested in the operation, which took place from December 5th to 12th and targeted criminal groups in Benin, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, and Togo. The exercise was called Operation Priscas, named for a little girl rescued from a cocoa field in 2015, who is now thriving seven years later. The UN Security Council has expressed deep concern at the persistent political deadlock in Libya and disappointment at lack of progress which continue to hamper efforts to foster stability and unity. Elections were scheduled to take place last December 24th and the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum roadmap was created more than two years ago. VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shanawi discussed these developments with Wolfgang Porstai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya. The UN Security Council is perfectly right. Libya is just superficially relatively quiet and stable. The situation of the population, especially in the east and even more in the south, is much worse than in Tripoli and in Misrata, and this is what Westerners usually see and think about Libya. This is about healthcare, this is about education facilities, about infrastructure of all kinds, about fuel in the south where the oil is coming from, and also in part about the daily supply of the population. People complain about the far-spread corruption and an unequal distribution of the oil revenues. UN Special Representative Patiyi recently stressed this problem in a meeting with Prime Minister Dabeba. He said to the Prime Minister that there is a requirement for more transparency and a requirement for a Libya-owned mechanism for the supervision of public spending. Additionally, most Libyans throughout the country, even in Tripoli and in Misrata, are fed up with the lack of process towards elections, and they demand a replacement of the currently ruling political class, including the Beba and including the rival parliaments, the HR and the HCS. Let's hope that UNSR Patiyi will succeed with all this. UN Security Council members stressed the importance of a comprehensive national dialogue and an inclusive reconciliation process. There was a commitment to support a comprehensive intra-Libyan dialogue aimed at, among other things, the the formation of a unified Libyan government capable of governing throughout the country and representing the Libyan people. Is that feasible? This is very interesting that the UN Security Council talks about forming a unified government through a comprehensive inter-Libyan dialogue and not after elections. Actually, they demand such a government right now and not after elections whenever it may take place. And also interesting in this context that it neither mentioned the House of Representatives nor the High Council of State, the rival parliament. Obviously, in New York, they have understood that the successful national-wide elections are not realistic with the current paper government. Well, what could this mean? I would say maybe the revival of something like the Libya Political Dialogue Forum, which brought the Libyans to the paper government, or maybe a national assembly, including the tribes and the elected local representatives. Kassan Salameh, that time UN Special Representative, proposed such an assembly already in 2019 in spring, just before General Hefta launched his attack on Tripoli, which ended all these initiatives. I would say regarding a new Libya Political Dialogue Forum or a National Assembly, the key question is if this form of legitimation 
would be accepted by the Beba and, even more important, by the kingmakers. The kingmakers, the militias in Tripoli and Misrata, and the Central Bank of Libya, which funds the government. The members of the Security Council noted that progress on the political process should be accompanied by constructive engagement in the economic and security tracks, as well as improvement in the respect of human rights. What could the UN Special Representative to Libya do to accomplish what the Security Council is calling for? Progress in the economic and security tracks is closely linked to political progress. Although this is ignored by many on the international level, economy, or more precisely oil revenues, are a weapon a weapon in the political struggle in Libya as long as there is no mechanism for a more equal distribution of the oil money. Demands to keep the National Oil Corporation out of the political struggle as long as there is no such a mechanism means just maintaining the current situation. But he has fully understood this and works, as said before, towards such a Libyan-owned mechanism. On the security track, not much has happened since the opening of the coastal road in summer last year. There is still a huge amount of mistrust And this won't change until there is a sustainable political solution. My recommendation would be to push for a full implementation of the ceasefire agreement and in particular for an implementation of an efficient international supervision of the ceasefire with regards to the respect of human rights. A change of the mindset would be required among the militias, the politicians, the police and all the people down there. That was Volkan Poshtai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA's Mohamed al-Shinawi. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. The French news agency AFP says a delegation from Ivory Coast is in Mali for talks on a dispute over the detention of 46 Ivorian soldiers. Malian officials say the delegation, led by Ivorian Defense Minister Tene Brihami Autara, is meeting with Junta leader Colonel Asim Goita and government officials. Togolese Foreign Minister Robert Ducey, whose country is mediating in the dispute, is also expected in Bamako today. In July, 49 Ivorian soldiers were arrested at the airport in Mali. Ivory Coast says they were sent to provide backup for a German contingent of the UN peacekeeping force, but Bamako calls them mercenaries and has charged them with seeking to undermine state security. The West African bloc ECOWAS has given Mali until year's end to release the troops. In related news, Reuters says a coalition of armed groups in northern Mali has pulled out of peace talks based on a 2015 accord. It sought to decentralize Mali, integrate rebels into the armed forces, and boost the region's economy. The coalition says the government has failed to implement the deal. Ghana has been a bastion of stability in a region plagued by civil unrest and coups. The world's second biggest grower of cocoa and Africa's number two gold producer, Ghana, began exporting oil in late 2010. Currently, however, its economy is in a meltdown. I asked Alex Vines, Director of Regional Studies and International Security and leader of the Africa program at Chatham House, what caused Ghana's economy to go downhill. Yeah, so Ghana seems to be cyclical, but you, when you get towards the end of a second term of a government, the economy uh, worse, has worsened significantly. 
And um, Ghana has been hit by the headwinds also of high inflation. It had gone on to a cycle of profligate borrowing. Interest rates obviously have been high too, so Ghana can't, it would not make sense, and Ghana couldn't with the, uh, its economic performance now go to the, the commercial markets to, to kind of raise money uh, to kind of service its debt. And so it's being forced back into the embrace of the international financial institutions, the IMF in particular, all at a time uh, as we're kind of getting close to the next Ghanaian election. So uh, Nanu Kufuadu is coming towards the end of his second term. Uh, even myself, uh, we have presidential candidates for the next election beginning to kind of approach Chatham House here to give speeches on, on why they should be president. So it, it is something that we see. But uh, it is very alarming that the CD, the, the Ghanaian currency, is one of the worst performing currencies in, in, in Africa currently, and that you have had such a meltdown. For, for as you correctly see, say, Ghana is seen as a kind of democratic um, anchor state in a rough neighborhood. And so economic turbulence in Ghana is not good for West Africa at all, both for Ghanaians, but also for their neighbors. So is Ghana now uh, uh, on the way of restructuring its uh, economy uh, through the IMF? Yeah, so that is what's going to happen. And of course, that in itself is, is politically controversial in Ghana. Um, you know, a certain generation of Ghanas, Ghanaians always remember the, the, the structural adjustment programs that they had to go through and the belt tightening and the tightening that occurred and the difficulties that they experienced. So that's always been a very divisive political thing to have to accept that you need to go to the IMF for help. But indeed, that is what is occurring. Uh, and again, I think we're likely now to see a cycle where you may have a change of party and, 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 and obviously a new president in, in Ghana. And uh, it's no secret, but the former president, before Nanu Kufuadu, uh, Mahama, uh, is interested in uh, running again for president and is beginning to be on election, uh, electoral maneuvers. It is kind of ironic that one of the reasons he was uh, voted out uh, was, was because of poor uh, husbandry of the Ghanaian economy. So this is why I, I, I say it feels a bit cyclical the way that we look at it. Ghanaian governments tend to survive two terms and, and then get voted out and uh, uh, and that's what I think we're going to see here again. Let's say there's a new government. The last government abandoned fiscal discipline and opened the spending taps to, in anticipation of an oil windfall. So will they learn from the past mistake? or? Uh, so uh, uh, new governments coming in tend to be more fiscally disciplined. They say the right things. They, uh, and the markets kind of like it. I mean, there are some very strong fundamentals that you outlined already, that you know, Ghana is an important gold producer. It does produce, uh, it, it is an oil producer, which in the short to midterm is still important. It is one of the world's leading producers of, of cocoa. Uh, so there is a strong agricultural base. There is enormous potential for tourism and other agricultural um, um, industries. Uh, and so I think, you know, those fundamentals with also a better educated workforce does provide some hope for Ghana uh, in the midterm. But it is a very choppy period now that we're entering into in uh, the build up to this election. 
and then clearly the austerity that a new government is going to have to pursue in the short term to stabilize the economy before you can get the, 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 the growth that's needed again. That was Alex Vines, Director of Regional Studies and International Security and leader of the Africa program at Chatham House. He talked with me from London. Ghana sent its National Security Minister to Burkina Faso Wednesday to repair a diplomatic rift after Ghana's president accused Ouagadougou of hiring Russian mercenaries to fight militants. Kent Mensa speaks to analysts on growing concerns about the mercenaries in West Africa in this report from Accra, Ghana. Speaking to journalists after meeting with Burkina Faso's interim leader, Army Captain Ibrahim Tuari, Ghana's National Security Minister Abed Kandapa said... They had a frank discussion that sought to clarify what Ghanaian President Nana Akufuado said in Washington. We have revealed the very, very strong cooperation between our two countries. And we have clarified to our mutual satisfaction recent reported discussions between Ghana and the United States with regard to the needed partnerships for sustainable peace in the region. Speaking at the U.S. African Leaders Summit in Washington last week, President Akupuadu accused Burkina Faso of hiring mercenaries from Russia's Wagner Group and giving them revenue from a mine as payment. Burkina Faso's mines minister has denied the allegations. Researchers say several African countries, including Mali and the Central African Republic, have recruited soldiers from the Wagner Group to fight insurgencies. They say Wagner, which is believed to have ties to Russia's President Vladimir Putin, is mostly motivated by the chance to enrich itself by securing lucrative natural resources. Mukhtar Mumuni Mukhtar, executive director of West Africa Center for Counter-Extremism, said, Ghana's concerns are legitimate because Russia's Wagner Group mercenaries do not have any track record of leaving sustainable peace in their areas of operations. No, we don't think that these Wagner forces, are, you know, they have that sense of Uh, legitimacy in terms of building uh, structures that are sustainable to deal with the threat. We're not seeing any measures that are aimed at building local community structures, civil society, and other groups that will strengthen, you know, these countries to deal with the the problem on their own. And we haven't had any good example anywhere. And so we're very worried that it would be used for other objectives, other aims especially when it comes to, you know, regime, you know, change. In addition, Mukhtar said Russia is hiding behind the operations of the Wagner Group to expand its political foothold in Africa. In reality, it's an element of expansionist agenda, interest, I mean, seeking to expand their interests and foothold in, in Africa. And because we're seeing, you know, their, their space in Europe is shrinking. And so they need to expand, you know, that in other territories where they have an advantage. And they do have an advantage in, in West Africa in many ways, because for several decades, several decades of uh, Western I mean, engagement here, a lot of people have developed some sense of fatigue because things are not working the way we expected them to work. We're seeing, you know, democracies progressing, and so people are looking elsewhere. For his part, Vincent Azuma, head of research and evaluation of the West African Network for Peace Building, said. Ghana has taken a good move in order not to strain the relationship with its francophone neighbor. Whilst it is good for Ghana to raise concern about the security of our northern borders with Burkina Faso, and also to make everybody alert and to alert the world that 
it's likely that this Wagner um, group might want to have some integration into Ghana. It is also very dangerous for us now getting the military elements in Burkina Faso to have some hatred for Ghana. Ghana and Burkina Faso have generally had a steady and positive diplomatic relationship thanks to cooperation in agriculture, water, trade, transport, and security. Kent Mensah for VOA News, Accra, Ghana. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokibili Abaro, and our engineer, Shogun Chong, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.